And uh, as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. And it's kind of an overcast, sleepy morning. So we're going to try and get our minds kind of revved up. So we're actually going to do a test of cognitive alertness. So in just a second, Maxine, pull up the video. And what you want to watch, you want to watch for and try and count how many times the kids wearing white pass the ball. Now, did you notice the gorilla in the middle of the test? Now, that's, a, that's a, one of the more famous psychology tests that actually the two researchers, this will tell you grad school kids, like, don't play around. They were actually doing this as a joke and running these tests when they were working on their PhD at Harvard and then found out that the majority of the people taking the test actually don't see the gorilla. So if you missed it, there was someone dressed up in a gorilla costume that came out in the middle and you're focused on the people passing the ball, you actually miss it. And they have this funny book that they call the Invisible gorilla that they've written where they uh, made a whole career on helping reveal to us all of the things that we actually don't see. And there's so many things in the world that we either miss or we just misunderstand. And as we're going through Matthew chapter 8 and 9, what Matthew is doing is he's presenting to us Jesus as Savior. He's the new Joshua who's going to save his people from their sins. And what he's doing is he's given us a total picture of all of the elements that he saves us from. And we've come to the very end. And at the very end, he saves two people, two miracles, where he saves them from blindness. He makes the blind to see. And someone who can't hear, he heals them so they can speak. So the inability to see and then speak are the final miracles that culminate this great act of salvation. And it's worth thinking about why. Like, why does Matthew lead up to and have this be the pinnacle? I mean, he's shown us Jesus raise a girl from the dead. I mean, you would think that would like be the climax, but it's not. It climaxes here. And I think one of the things that he's trying to teach us, all of these miracles are meant to teach us, and we're meant to see ourselves in all of them and say what's true of them physically is true of every one of us spiritually. And it culminates with uh, driving out the darkness, helping us to see and then speak. And just one of the realities is that all of us are spiritually blind. We live in a present darkness where there's just things that we don't see. So our hope for this morning is that Jesus will touch us, touch our eyes so we can see. And probably one of my favorite ways to, probably one of the best people to help us think about what's it like to live in darkness is the story of Ernest Shackleton and the, the endurance. And they were going to be the first explorers to hike across the Antarctic. And then their ship, they had a shipwreck and it became a survival mission instead of an expedition. And for three months they were, they were, they were stuck and they were hiking across. And they had to endure the polar night, which is three months of total darkness. And he said of all of the, the, um, all of the challenges, no food, frostbite, the fear, so the, the darkness was the hardest. He said, what it does to you when you're in the darkness is it distorts so you can't see things. You can't see. So it distorts how you view reality. It, um, it causes you to become depressed. It disorients you so you don't know who you are. You don't know where you are. You don't know what's 
around you. And one of the key themes of all of the Gospels, especially John, but all of them, show us that the the great battle, the cosmic struggle, is that we're living in darkness. And Christ comes as the light of the world to drive out the darkness, to heal our blindness and drive out the darkness. So let's look at this is what this story is fundamentally about. So follow along, starting in chapter 9, verse 27. And as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men approached him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, Be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area. And just as they were going, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. And when the demon had been driven out of the man who had been mute, he spoke. And the crowds were amazed. And they were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen before in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So when we look at this, the darkness, the blindness, how does he drive out the darkness? How does he help us see? But a couple of things I want you to notice. I just want you to notice first how interesting it is that you have two groups. One of the things that Matthew is going to do is he's going to foreground for us the crowd's reaction. Jesus performs these 10 mighty deeds that demonstrate the salvation that he's bringing. And then he wants to show us that people respond to these very differently. So you can see it like in 827, uh, you have that the men, they were amazed when they saw Jesus calm the storm. And they said, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And then in 834, you have when he goes to the the Gentiles and he casts out the demon and it goes into the pigs and they come and they say, you have to go away. Leave us. They push him out. And then you have in nine, chapter nine, verse eight, when the crowd saw it, they were awestruck and they gave glory to God. And they said, who has given such authority to men? And then here you have two different reactions. You have the crowd who looked and they're amazed. We've never seen anything like this. And then you have the Pharisees who are not only not amazed, they say this is not only, not only is this not something God is doing, he's doing it by the power of the devil. It's the devil who's doing this. And so just notice in times of kind of darkness, one of the ways it disorients you is you have two groups of people and they were both from Capernaum. They both had seen Jesus do all of these things. And yet these two groups are responding to the very same things they're all seeing in polar opposite ways. Just think about what that would have been like for them. You know, here you're, you're around people that you know and you admire and you respect. And then you see something that causes you to be amazed and you celebrate. You say, can you believe it? Look what he's doing. And then the response is, what do you mean? This is terrible. This is done by the power of the devil. And you think, All right, this is polar opposites. And I think if we're honest, one of the things that was most disorienting about this whole last year is how everyone could see the same events, and then yet you would see such radically different explanations of those events, interpretations. You have, on the one hand, you have uh, acceptance, and then the other, rejection. And it just makes me wonder, all week I was wondering, how is it possible that both groups see the exact same thing and come to such radically different conclusions? 
And, you know, I think you could take, I actually started a list and stopped. This is just, you know, tangentious and not really helpful. But you could go through every single major news story of the past year and a half. And then you could go to kind of two different news sources and you could look, isn't it amazing that the exact same event is being interpreted in two polar opposite ways? It's like, how do you, how do you, how do you bring light into such a divisive way of seeing the world? You know, if you take not just those things, I'm kind of amazed, kind of my kind of formal training is in history. So I got my PhD in as a historian. And I've been amazed at how in the last couple years, you know, one of the easiest ways to get a book contract, especially if you're a Christian, is to write a book that basically argues that the single greatest driver of oppression and exploitation is the Christian church. That's from Christians saying this. And one of the interesting things is one of the streams in in kind of more academic history, and there's fascinating books written by non-Christians who are actually saying that one of the greatest um, single engines and entities for justice and all of those things is actually the Christian church. And they're not Christians. And so it's really interesting. It's like, wait a second. You have two people, like, they're coming to such different conclusions. How does this happen? I mean, think about it just kind of more broadly in American history. One of the things about the tension is what's the defining thing about our country? Is it a history of one of oppression and exploitation or is it the defining fact one of freedom and liberty? How can two people come to such different conclusions? It makes things very difficult. And what I find so interesting is, all right, they're living and somewhat encouraging is that they're living and navigating this type of world. That's the world that they're in. Jesus's day was one of polarization too. And maybe the blind men who cry out, Lord, have mercy on us is a really good cry. Lord, help us. People coming to such different conclusions. Now, what I find so interesting is maybe there's some real wisdom for how to navigate a time like that. Now, on the one hand, uh, you know, what you can see is that uh, one is looking at what Jesus is doing and giving him praise. God is doing this. The other ones are saying, no, this is the devil, demonic. And now in this instance, it's very easy to see, well, one of them's clearly wrong. But what I find so interesting is the progression throughout the Gospel of Matthew. See, first they make this statement. The Pharisees say that he's doing this by the power of the devil. And then in a couple more chapters, there's going to be another miracle where he heals someone who's blind, and they make the exact same statement. And then Jesus enters in with logic and says, well, that doesn't make any sense. If I was driving out demons by the power of demons, a house divided by itself can't stand. And then they'll make the same accusation again. And then he really kind of brings down the hammer on them, accuses them of the sin, the unpardonable sin of, of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But I find it interesting, even the way he deals with this is the slow progression of hearing first, then engaging, and then a movement. So maybe there's some wisdom here, but it certainly is interesting how in his world they're seeing the exact same thing and coming to such different conclusions and one of the things that could cause all of us, in a sense, to be um, humbled is how often people in the Gospels are close to him, but completely miss what he's actually doing. It's one of the sad things you read through all the stories, that just because they're close to him, it doesn't mean they, they get him. They've come to the wrong conclusions. The darkness, they're blind. They can't see him, what he's doing, and they can't see themselves. And the disciples, you read through, often the disciples don't get it. 
And then you read the people like Nicodemus at the highest level of the social strata. He doesn't get it. The woman at the well, the lady at the bottom, she doesn't understand what he's doing. The religious leaders here, they don't understand. And you can live your whole life so close to him and then yet not get him, still miss him. And I just wonder, you know, I look at the Pharisees. It's like, man, how did they miss it? How did they not see it? How did they see these incredible works and then attribute it to activity of the devil? Maybe there was something there about being, you know, we can really get behind what's going on. We can know the real truth. But first things, in times of darkness, disorientation, you can see that there's this stark division that starts to happen. And then Matthew's going to play on these things. These things only get wider as they go through the Gospels. But now let's actually look at the blind man, the two blind men, because in each of these sections, he's going to give us something that illustrates real faith. So salvation is all about faith, and if faith is by faith, it brings freedom, and that freedom is so that we can follow him. And he paints this gallery of all these different illustrations of faith. So look at the blind men, and what I want you to see first is, do you notice first, their faith is actually remarkably perceptive. Even though they're physically blind, they're the only ones up until this point who can spiritually see. Notice what they confess about Jesus. They confess. They call him son of David. And that's one of the original titles that Matthew was going to work out, that he's the son of David. Who's the son of David? Solomon, the great temple builder. He's the one who's the new Solomon. He's the Messiah. This is a messianic term. He's David's son who's going to sit on David's throne and restore David's kingdom. No one has recognized that about him yet. And they have remarkable perception. They're the first to really be able to see who he is and what he's going to do. But then not only are they very perceptive, they're also very persistent. Notice they're out in public, and it says they're following him, and they're crying out to him to have mercy on them. And notice what does Jesus do? He keeps walking. He ignores them. You know, the the centurion comes to him in public, and Jesus stops. Jairus comes to him, and Jesus stops. He stops the whole crowd so he can heal the woman with the blood flow. But they come to him and are crying out, and he just keeps on walking. It makes you wonder, why? Why does Jesus ignore them? But nonetheless, they're not deterred. Their faith is persistent. They're going to keep going, and they follow him. And they follow him. It says they follow him into his house. Very interesting. You know, Jesus' base of operations was Peter's house. It was one of the largest houses in that community. And yet it says into his. So is this into Peter's house? Did he have his own little place there that he used for uh, to escape and retreat and ministry? Don't know. But here following in. And what you see here is, you know, in this whole section, you see all these different, you know, the outcast who's willing to cry out and the the centurion who expresses faith by humbly coming to Jesus and begging for the healing of a servant. And you see the friends who kind of heroically will bring their friend and cut a hole in the roof and lay him down. See all these examples of faith. And this is a remarkable example of faith because they're very perceptive and then they're also persistent. They're not going to stop and they follow him in. And then that question he asked, this is kind of the question that sums up this whole section of Scripture. Do you believe I can do this? Do you believe? They're crying out to him for something. Do you believe? And they say, yes, yes, Lord. And then he touches them. The healing, it always comes either through word or touch, word or touch. That's how the healings always come. And it's through faith. 
And I wonder, he praises their faith. And I wonder if they even knew that's what they were exhibiting and showing. And so they're healed. And you notice the fascinating thing is we often think that seeing is believing. But for them, it's the believing that causes the seeing. They believe first and then they see. There's so many things just in the world, in the spiritual life, that's believing and then seeing. And then he touches them. But then here's another thing that I find so interesting. What is the next thing they do? So this is the first great act of faith where they've been perceptive to see him and they're following him and they're persistent and they're not going to give up. And then they get healed. And then Jesus tells them point blank, the first act of discipleship, he gives them a command and says, see to it that you do not speak about this. Tell no one about this. So first, very clear point blank command. Don't speak about this. And then what do they do? They go out and they spread the news about him everywhere. They actually, the first thing they do is they disobey his very clear and explicit command. Now, in one sense, you can sympathize with them because, I mean, let's be honest, they were blind and now they can see. It's the kind of thing that's hard to hold down your excitement. You know, we last week got a puppy and we've been joking because I was teasing about our three-year-old son who's our most introverted of our children. But this puppy has caused him to tell every single person he meets, no matter where he meets you, that he got a dog. And there's just certain things you can experience that's just kind of hard to suppress. And I mean, so you can sympathize with them. But But the fact remains, Jesus told them not to do something and they did it anyway. And so what you see is just this remarkable mixture of faith that's perceptive, faith that's persistent, and faith that's disobedient. And that's just, that's just how, I mean, if, in one sense, if you don't recognize yourself in that, then you need the Spirit's help to see your own follies and foils and how easy it is to uh, fumble, fumble along. A couple things, you know, why did Jesus even tell them that? This is something that Mark really brings to the front. He tells people to keep quiet and not say these things. And I think the ultimate reason is because until they actually see what he's uh, come to do, until after the cross, resurrection, um, they just can't understand what he's doing. But in all of these things, I mean, timing is king. And so they're, they're proclaiming that Jesus is the son of David, the messianic uh, title. That's what's going to get him killed. And it's just not time. And people can't understand it yet. It's all about timing. And maybe there's another piece just that, you know, these miracles aren't PR stunts. These aren't the kind of thing Jesus is doing, try to uh, attract attention. He's going to tell us the kingdom works like leaven. You put in bread where you, you work it in and it slowly almost imperceptibly works its way out. But still, it's just so interesting that they have this mixture even in them of incredible faith and then disobedience. And so we're thinking, all right, well, why? You know, what, what were they thinking? You know, why did they justify not obeying what he said? And I mean, maybe they just trusted their own common sense more. And just said, well, I know he said not to say these things, but he didn't really mean it. He couldn't mean it. Of course he wants us to tell us. tell. How else is he going to build his kingdom if we don't go around and say these things? And, uh, and of course, we haven't really read the Gospels if there's not some things that Jesus says that really shock us. 
And we say, oh, he couldn't really mean that. <laughs> so maybe they thought he didn't really mean it. Maybe they just assumed he was just being too modest. I mean, he talked about not doing your religious things to be seen by people. And he's just, he's just too shy and modest. And if he's really going to build a kingdom, he's got to let us do the, you know, the PR work. He's got to let us take the word out. And I think one of the things this just shows is how deep the blindness is. You know, our elders meet every Thursday, and one of the things we've been praying for continually over this past you know, couple months is we want to do Jesus' work, Jesus' way. So what's Jesus calling us to do? His work. And then how has he called us to do it? His way. His work, doing it his way. And here they actually are doing Jesus' work. They're spreading the word, but they're not doing it in the way that he's told them for that moment. And I think this just, you know, I see this and I'm humbled by it. So I think, man, what a mixture is in. They have clear insight, courageous faith, and then blatant disobedience. And so it can humble us to be more gracious. All right, now let's end and let's think about, all right, how's the power to overcome the darkness? How do we overcome it? How does the touch heal us? What does it help us see? Because one of the great themes all throughout the Gospels is that the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. It can't. And then you'll trace from this point on, we'll see, we can look at the Pharisees. How are they trying to overcome him? What are they doing? They're going to use aggression and intimidation to try and squash his people, that if anybody accepts him and publicly acknowledges they'll put him out of the synagogue. I mean, cancel culture is nothing new. That's what they're going to do to try and squash it. And then they're going to try and overcome him with humiliation and mock him and say, look, he's doing this by the power of demons. Or they'll mock him and say, you know, we know where your parents are from. They uh, mock him for being born illegitimate. You know, the story of the virgin birth that got around. And you can imagine that's a hard one to believe. And so they mock him for that. So they're mocking him. They also try and overcome. The darkness tries to overcome it ultimately with breaking him and killing him. That's what the cross is all about. And you know, one of the interesting things that all of the gospel writers go out of their way to show that nearly everything that happens on the cross happens either at night or in the darkness. So it was at night when he's betrayed. The trial is at night in the darkness. And then even when he's on the cross, when it should be midday from 12 to 3, uh, it's midnight descends in the middle of the day. And you can actually see literally the light of the world is being snuffed out as he enters into the ultimate darkness. And fulfilling Amos 8, 9, where it says, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the day in broad daylight. And there on the cross, Jesus is actually plunged into the ultimate darkness, and he's entering into all of the fury and disorientation and depression that the darkness brings. And then for two days, it appears as if the darkness has won. The darkness has overcome. And then bursting forth on glorious day, up from the grave, Christ arose and now he stands in victory. Sin's lost its power. The curse has been broken. And just as the first act of creation was God speaking light into the darkness, the first act of recreation is Jesus triumphing over the darkness. That's why we celebrate on Sunday. It's the day of the sun rising and overcoming and dispelling the darkness. And he entered into that ultimate darkness. So now we can walk in the light. And we can no longer walk in darkness, but now he can touch us and we can see. And all of the things that we go through the world just not seeing, he can open up our eyes and see. And what he comes to us, like he comes to them and says, do you believe not I can do this, but I have done this. Do you believe I have conquered the darkness and overcome bringing light into the world? 
And then what that then means, what that means is a couple things. It means how we can now live in a world that is dark, in a world that is divided, in a world that is disoriented. What does it mean? It means we can be light. He is the light of the world, and then he's told us, you are the light of the world. And the way we are is we reflect it. And my favorite little image from that is our calling is to be light, but we're not meant to be the sun. We're not meant to be these 4,000 watt spotlights that can light up a whole building. Our calling in many ways is just to be two watts, two watt light bulb. You know, you can go and ask any of our three-year-olds in a completely dark room, two watts will change everything. And so in a dark world, can you be two watts? You know, one, uh, one pastor whose commentary on Matthew I've been reading has been so helpful. His name's Douglas Sean O'Donnell, and he's pastor outside of Wheaton. And uh, he tells a story about the way he came to faith was through the influence of one of his friends on his high school basketball team named Mark Davidson. And he said, Mark was just the strangest guy. High school locker rooms can be fairly dark places. And he said he was just one of the strangest guys. He never swore. He treated everyone with respect, even the water boy. He uh, treated the girls with respect. He was not full of himself. And he said he was voted that year Indiana Basketball Player of the Year. And it was that just that two watts of light in that locker room that brought him, uh, dispelled the darkness in his own life. So think about your life, where you go. How can you be two watts? Can you bring that? You know, no complaining, just two watts. You used to say one of the best ways we can bring two watts of light out into the world is just smile at people. But now most of our smiles are covered up, so you'll have to find another way to express your happiness. Maybe smile with your eyes if you can. But how can you be just two watts? And then think about what that'll do for you, not just what it does in the darkness, but what it does for us. It helps orient us. It can help give us a path. The Word is a lamp. It's a light to our feet. It can open you. It can strengthen you. You know, one of the great challenges is either the world or our own flesh will want us to fixate on certain things. And when we fixate on them, we actually miss, you know, I kept saying, that I, I want to say just we miss the gorilla of grace. And I don't know if that's the best image or not, but you get it from the video. We can fixate on certain things and we just miss the gorilla of grace that's just bouncing around all around us. I mean, it can try and get us to fixate on the fact that maybe we've been victimized in a certain way. And you can miss the gorilla of grace. Maybe your own heart can cause you to fixate on your own problems. And they might be significant, but if you fixate on them, you might miss the gorilla of grace. Maybe you can fixate on your own objectives and goals and dreams, and you can miss the gorilla of grace. Maybe at work you're forced to fixate on the bottom line, and it causes you to miss the gorilla of grace. And one of the things that Christ can do is he can touch us, and then he can help us see. And I think one of the most health-giving things that I've had to work into my life this past year is to try and really intentionally uh, fixate, ask him to help me fixate on the things I should be grateful for. So as we transition to communion, um, what I want us to think about today, what I want us to ask the Lord to do, because in many ways it's his touch that heals us. It's his touch that can open up our eyes. And one of the things he says is this is symbolic. It represents my body. So when you take communion and taste the bread, taste the wafer, you're touching his body. And so ask him to help you when he touches you, ask him to help give you eyes to see all the things that you should be grateful for.
And I'm going to lead us, and here's, I'm going to take a, this is a litany of thanksgiving that I pull from the Book of Common Prayer. And it's something that once every couple days this past summer, I would just pray through and ask the Lord, help me. Help me to see these things around me that I should be thankful for. So first, take and touch his broken body and his blood shed for you. And then I'll lead you as we ask him to help us, give us eyes to see the grace that's all around us. So let's ask him to help give us eyes to see that we can be thankful for all the gifts he so freely bestowed on us. First, Lord, help us to see the beauty and the wonder of your creation in the earth and sky and sea. We thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, for our daily food and our drink and our homes and our families and our friends, help us to have eyes to see these gifts. We thank you for them, Lord. For minds to think and hearts that love and hands that serve, we thank you for these gifts, Lord. For the health and the strength to work and the time to rest and to worship, we give you thanks for these gifts, Lord. For all who are patiently enduring suffering and for all who are faithful in the midst of their adversity, we give you thanks for them, Lord. For all who earnestly seek after truth and who labor for justice, we give you thanks for them, O Lord. For all that is good, for all that is gracious in the lives of all the men and women around us that reveals the image of Christ, we give you thanks for these things, O Lord. For the communion of saints in all times and places, we give you thanks for that, O Lord. And above all things, give us eyes to see and hearts to rejoice. We give you thanks for the great, great mercies and the precious promises that have been given to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. To him be the praise and glory now and forever. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this day, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.